screen and uh, we're going to put them to Ben after the sermon. Please uh, do, yeah, text in your questions and we'll have a live question time. But first, our Bible reading. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, John. How are you going? I'm going pretty well. Good to see you. Got your, got your hoodie on there. Staying nice and warm. Absolutely nice and warm. Excellent. Very yep. good. Uh, I'll hand over to you to uh, bring our Bible reading from Romans 14. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are uh, continuing through Romans as uh, Paul instructs the church on how to live in light of Jesus and what he did. Picking up from verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, I noticed uh, something very cool in that background as well. There was a, uh, a Lego Darth Vader. I guess he has a hoodie. <laughs> uh, please, uh, brothers and sisters, keep your Bibles open. I'll lead us briefly in prayer and then we'll get stuck into this part of God's Word together. Let's pray. Uh, we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your Word, the Bible. Uh, Father, we uh, uh, thank you uh, for the wonderful fact that you're powerful Holy Spirit is at work within us together, even as we uh, experience this really impoverished, impoverished kind of uh, attempt at fellowship, I guess. Uh, and we thank you that uh, by the power of your Spirit at work within us, you build us up into the likeness of Jesus. And we pray that you will do that now as we come uh, to this first half of Romans 14. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, no doubt that some of you will be aware that I put out this little survey earlier in the week, and it was a survey that had 13 questions, and the only option I allowed people uh, to answer with was just yes or no. Now, not everyone will have seen the survey, so I'm going to show you what the questions uh, were. Uh, the question was basically, is it okay for a Christian to, and then there are a number of options, is it okay for a Christian to eat red meat on a good Friday? Is it okay for a Christian to watch an R-rated film or to date a non-Christian, to say, you're a complete idiot to someone's face, to baptise an infant, 
to disown a family member, to vote for the Greens? Is it okay for a Christian to kill someone? Is it okay for a Christian to tell a blatant lie to protect someone or to work on a Sunday or to destroy a statue of Jesus? Is it okay for a Christian to throw a Bible in the bin, yes or no? Is it okay for a Christian to disobey a government rule during COVID lockdown again, yes or no? They are some juicy questions, aren't they? Being only allowed to answer yes or no made this an unfair survey. Uh, And I'm very well aware that it was deliberately an unfair survey. Uh, If you could have clicked both yes and no for each question, that would have been fairer. Because for every one of these questions, I could think of a reason why you shouldn't make it a hard and fast yes or no. Every single one has a possible exception to what I'd say is the otherwise more biblical response. Incidentally, uh, the hardest one for me was question three. I think it's almost always wrong for a a Christian to date a non-Christian, but even for that, I could eventually come up with a scenario whereby I think it would be honouring to Jesus to do so. Now, the aim of the survey was uh, not to get into all those issues, but to demonstrate that our initial gut reactions to a variety of issues are just as likely to be different from the person sitting next to us as they are to be the same. And as you can see from the lovely graphs, and a big shout out is due uh, to the one and only Mick Hyam who put these together, even taking into account the unfairness of the survey, it's more than likely that we all have areas of disagreement with each other. Whatever your responses are to these questions just now or perhaps earlier in the week if you did the survey, there's a good chance that the next member of our church has some level of disagreement with you and with me. Now, just looking at that survey briefly, uh, the the purple, I think, are the yes. So 48% of people think, yes, it's okay for a Christian to watch an R-rated film. Uh, 56% of people uh, think it's okay to destroy a statue of Jesus, but that means almost half of us do not, etc. Now, church family, a big part of me would absolutely love to go through each of these issues and explain why the answer should be mostly no or mostly yes, to put us all on the same page. And believe it or not, there would actually be some level of appropriateness in doing that, Uh, not for the sake of me having everyone agree with me, uh, but because my job is actually to pastor by reading and explaining the scriptures. And the scriptures do teach, rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness. But there's something much more important and much more appropriate that needs to be done because even if I could get us all on the same page with these issues according to Scripture, well, then there'd come the next 13 issues for which our gut reactions, at least, would put us all at odds with one another again. How are we to remain unified as the Church of God amidst our many differences of opinion on a number of important, albeit disputable, issues? What are some of the indisputable truths from God that will aid us in not correcting one another, but in accepting one another. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul would have us learn today from 
this first half of Romans 14. Paul gives three reasons as to why we're to consider one another fully-fledged members of God's church, even when we're likely to disagree on all manner of things pertaining uh, to the life of faith. Firstly, the brothers and sisters we disagree with are people that God, through Jesus, has accepted. Secondly, God enables us both to be acceptable and to grow in our Christian maturity. And thirdly, God is the one to whom we ultimately all must give an account of our faith and our conduct. We begin with God's acceptance of one another in Christ. Paul commands, verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. He then gives an example of an area whereby there could likely be a difference of opinion for which we're to prioritise accepting rather than quarrelling. So verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. Why? For God has accepted them. And I think it's fair to say that the them refers to both parties. God has accepted all of us who are in Christ. Now, notice that the disputable matter here, in this case, happens to be one for which the Scriptures clearly uphold one side. Jesus himself declared all foods clean, Mark 7, 19. And in verse 14 of our chapter here, which we'll look at next week, Paul himself is convinced that nothing is unclean in itself. But even though the Bible clearly teaches that it's fine for Christians to eat anything, we've got to remember that all of us are in the process of being transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we can test and approve God's perfect will. It could easily be the case that a brother or sister has not yet come to the realisation or has not yet had a settled conscience that all foods are clean and therefore in their right desire to want to honour Jesus, they abstain from certain foods. Such people are commanded not to judge those who eat everything and those who eat everything are commanded not to be contemptuous to the vegetarian, the, the, the theologically vegetarian, I guess. I say that because there are lots of reasons other than theological reasons why people might choose to be vegetarian. The theologically vegetarian Christian will likely come eventually to be comfortable with the notion that all foods are actually fine. Just as the carnivorous Christian will eventually come to terms with the Bible's teaching on some other matter of Christian obedience that the vegetarian has already discovered. You're just as likely to be the weaker Christian in one area as you are to be the stronger Christian in another. But the big ticket reason as to why we're to be accepting of the weaker brother or sister is, of course, that God himself accepts all people who know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. It's not our quality of Christian ethics, nor our level of Christian maturity that make us acceptable to God. Important as those things are, it's God in his great kindness and mercy who has made us acceptable by cleansing us with the atoning blood of Jesus. 
Paul naturally then moves on to the second reason we're to embrace one another as fellow believers, despite serious differences of opinion. God not only makes us acceptable to him through Christ, but he enables our constant growth in Christian maturity. And so from verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. God alone is ultimately the master of every Christian and he will keep us acceptable as his servants through the ongoing transformation of our minds. And so verse 5, one person can consider one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. They give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, Paul here uses an example for which there happens to be a clear biblical directive. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul would teach that even the Sabbath day observance is merely a shadow of the reality that is now found in Christ. And there's no such thing, by the way, as Christmas in the Bible. Much as the uh, Jesus' birth is absolutely worth celebrating, there's no requirement in the Bible for Christians to observe a Christmas day or think that the 25th of December is somehow more sacred than any of the other days that the Lord has made. But the point is that regardless of whether or not someone sees a day as more sacred than another, each is to be fully convinced in their own mind which God is in the process of transforming in all of us. Hence, we can observe a day or not observe a day equally to the honour of God. Now, this is a wonderful teaching because if our good standing before God actually depended on our doctrinal purity, then it would be up to us to get it right. And I don't think any of us would completely. But thankfully, it's through God's enabling, hence two Christians can do different things, whereby each is still reckoned as honouring to the Lord. A big, indisputable theological point uh, that makes this kind of thing possible is that through faith in Jesus, we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. God counts us as in Christ, both in life and in death, regardless of where we stand on disputable matters. So to use Paul's words again from verse 7, for none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die even, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. To put this simply, Jesus' death by which he paid for all the things that make you and I unacceptable to God, and Jesus' resurrection, by which he's proven to be the Lord over all things, means that through faith, through trust in Christ, we're considered dead to sin and alive to God in all that we think and say and do, no matter where we are in terms of our Christian maturity. The reason we can afford to be wrong about something now and and perhaps get corrected in the future. The reason we can afford to be accommodating with fellow Christians who think differently 
on various issues to us is because of the gospel, the indisputable truth that Jesus died and rose and therefore saves his followers to the utmost. Now, friends, at this point, I'm going to level with you all about something. Part of me actually hopes and even expects that many of you could be a bit agitated right about now. Hopefully, some of you are wondering, how do you tell the difference between a disputable matter and an indisputable matter? Hopefully, some of you are wondering something like, wow, there are so many people in my church who said no to that question in Ben's survey, whereas I'm confident the answer has to be yes. Isn't Ben going to set everyone straight? It might even be the case that you're thinking, when's Jono going to sort out his young upstart assistant minister who's clearly wrong about saying yes to one of those questions in his unfair survey? Now, of course, it is absolutely vital that we work out the difference between disputable and indisputable matters. And the Bible does that all over the shop. Of course, it's right that you and I are zealous for upholding what we treasure from the Word of God, such that we want to see false views corrected. I'm kind of banking on some of that stuff coming up during the question time later on. But that is not what Paul does here. Before he would have us correct the theological vegetarian. Before he would have us correct the theological sabbatarian. Before he would have us engage in the theological debate about pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Before he would even worry about explaining what constitutes a disputable versus an indisputable matter, Paul addresses our hearts, our attitudes. Are we on about seeking acceptance of one another first? Is our first instinct to treat one another as brothers and sisters who are acceptable to God, people for whom Christ died? I find it really awkward to give the following specific challenge in this regard because it will so easily uh, seem to be self-serving. But with God as my witness and my helper, I do not intend it to be. And I'll speak in the first person to hopefully make what I'm saying a bit more palatable. When I might disagree with my pastor, or when I might disagree with the ministry staff of my church, or the leader of a ministry team that I serve on, then, even then, is my first instinct to treat them as a brother or sister acceptable to God for whom Christ died. Ministry leaders are no more in the kingdom of God than anyone else, but they are no less in the kingdom either. With that awkwardness out of the way, let me say again what I said just a few minutes back. The reason we can afford to be wrong about something now and get corrected in the future, the reason we can afford to be accommodating with fellow Christians who think differently on various issues to us is because of the gospel, the indisputable truth that Jesus died and rose and therefore saves his followers to the utmost. The gospel enables us to accept one another despite differences of opinion. One of the big fruits of the faith is true 
tolerance in its literal sense within the church. And of course, the other essential indisputable truth of the gospel is that in the end, God will bring everything into perfect judgment. That means for you and me that our final reckoning comes from not one another, but from the true judge. And this truth compels us yet again to prioritise acceptance over quarrelling with one another on disputable matters. So continuing the last uh, bit of uh, this section. Verse 10. You then, says Paul, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, and Paul being a good rabbi and Jew quotes the scripture, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to one another, no, to God. Friends, if we take this truth to heart, then when it comes to discussing issues on which we might differ, there'll be a certain reduction in the intensity with which we might seek to win one another over to our way of thinking. Because I'm not ultimately responsible for your salvation and sanctification, because you're not ultimately responsible for my salvation and sanctification, for both of us in the end, the measure of our thoughts, words and deeds is given by God and God alone. There's a Christian comic writer uh, who I quite enjoy named Adam Ford. Uh, he spells it with a 4D, right? And he captures and illustrates this notion really well. Uh, one of his comics depicts some older Christians arguing with some younger Christians. The old guys don't like the contemporary music that these young guys use in their congregational singing. The young guys reckon that the ancient, outdated hymns sung by the old guys are lame and boring. They each seek to win the other over to their way of thinking. Now, God comes in to have a word with all of them. And it turns out that the one thing they have in common is that they both disregard God's voice, thereby putting each of themselves in the position of judge over the other. Isn't that a fantastic way to sort of capture this? In the negative, I know, but I think it really does justice to this idea. Now, brothers and sisters, there absolutely are times where the Word of God will clearly condemn one practice and uphold the other. There absolutely are times, many times, where the Word of God will clearly show that there are matters for which being on the wrong side puts you squarely outside the kingdom of God. Uh, for example... We can disagree that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. But if we're disagreeing about that, it's not a disagreement happening within the fellowship of believers. It's a disagreement happening between someone who's saved and someone who's not. But when it comes to disputable matters, the fact that God is the final judge takes off the pressure. It enables us to sit loosely to things that might otherwise have divided us. By way of implications, I'm not actually going to say much today because Paul himself in the second half of the chapter, which uh, we'll be looking at next week, moves towards some more practical outworking of the principles he's establishing here. That said, in applying this scripture first to myself, uh, a helpful little thing I came up with was this. 
Next time I find myself at odds with a fellow believer, I think a really helpful thing for me to do would simply be to make sure I ask myself the question, what is Jesus' attitude to the person I'm disagreeing with? Just that and nothing else. It's a simple thing to remember. What is Jesus' attitude to the person I'm disagreeing with? Now, with that, I'm going to conclude briefly in prayer. But as Jono said, and uh, I hope uh, is, is uh, the case, we're going to have uh, a question time. Let me um, conclude in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of his sin-bearing death and life-giving resurrection and of you as the perfect final judge and the way that that gospel enables us uh, to be unified with one another despite differences of opinion on disputable matters. Heavenly Father, uh, please, by the power of your spirit at work within us, change and soften our hearts so that when, uh, not if, but when we have disagreements with one, one another, our first port of call is uh, not, not the issue, but our attitudes. Uh, and may we have the attitude that Jesus has uh, to fellow believers. And may that shape the way we go about disagreeing with one another. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ben. That was um, that was great. After um, after a uh, peaking our interest with those uh, with that survey and getting us all thinking about all these different issues and is it yes or is it no and uh, perhaps we've come along this morning expecting you to answer all those questions for us, um, but more importantly, you've uh, you've encouraged and challenged us to examine our attitude and uh, our attitude to one another, which is uh, a great foundation. Uh, we do have some questions that have come in. Um, and uh, certainly, some have have uh, wanted to to dig a bit deeper into some to some of those um, answers, but we'll um we'll we'll get to that. First of all, the first question here is: How do we balance showing grace for others who have not come to a conclusion on disputable matters, with wanting to challenge them to consider those matters? So, it's a wonderful question. Um, uh, so my uh, my thinking on that is. Is if I just want you to visualize stuff that we know to be absolutely indisputable and core that Jesus is God, that He is the Son of God, that He died to pay for sins, right? We're going to put that as a, as a little circle right in the middle, right? Then we're going to broaden the circle to more and more and more issues uh, that kind of flesh out the implications of that. Now, if someone is not quite on board with, with something that we think is a fairly logical conclusion, well, we're going, to be, we're going to be treating them sort of in the center circle and only ever move one step. The way it's been put to me before is like this. You don't move someone from A to D. You have to go through B and C first. And I think that taking people through things slowly is in and of itself a demonstration of being gracious and being caring. Uh, I, I can think of a, a rather humorous example of this that a, a friend who's in ministry actually had. He had a very new Christian come for the first time to a, a growth group and when it came time to pray, this new Christian was a little bit worried. He said, there's other Christian growth groups meeting tonight and, and what if they're praying at the same time that we're praying how do we know when it's our turn? Because obviously God's got to have everyone pray like 
individually, like he can't listen to all of them at once, right? It was quite a comical thing. They go, no, God's actually big enough to hear lots of prayers uh, at the same time. That's just a little moving from, from A to B, and it demonstrates a, a great care and, and, and grace. Anyway, next. Thanks, Ben. Um, next question. Great sermon. My question is about how we can guard against this passage being used to support the overwhelming theme of our age, that we should accept everyone's own version of the truth. Uh, that's easy. This passage itself will um, will fight against uh, pluralism or, or relativism because the moment Paul mentions uh, disputable matters, the very obvious implication that he believes there are also indisputable matters. And we're up to chapter 14 of a long letter that he spent a lot, a lot of time working on. Uh, there are some things that are so obviously, clearly indisputable in the mind of the Apostle Paul leading up uh, to this chapter that he, I think, by implication refers to. Now, that does lead on to a really obvious question that I brought up in the sermon is, well, what's the criteria for determining the difference between a disputable and an indisputable matter? Naturally, I worked on this quite a lot this week, and here's what I come up with. I'm going to need my uh, I'll just use yeah, one of my two hands, but I'm going to use two fingers, right? Two things everyone can remember. Number one, it's spoken about clearly and frequently, clearly and or frequently in the Bible. And two, it is tied directly to salvation. If you've got those two criteria, it is an indisputable matter. Uh, uh, I'll come up with two examples. Uh, they're fairly sort of deep, deep examples, uh, one being homosexuality and the other being baptism. Uh, the Bible frequently speaks about uh, homosexual practice uh, as being wrong in the sight of God and links it directly to salvation. Uh, there's no getting around this. 1 Corinthians 6 said, don't be deceived. Those who are homosexual will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, that's indisputable. Baptism, everyone rightly agrees that baptism is right for Christians, but the age at which we get baptism, and I'm talking about water baptism at this point, some people have read the Bible and they've come up with it's got to be a, a professing believer, a, an old, older person, not an infant. Some have read the Bible and have come up with, with an infant. But there's nowhere in the Scriptures that tie that question to salvation. Therefore, it remains a disputable matter. We can be in good fellowship with one another even if we have uh, disagreements about those things. Thanks, Ben. Perhaps flowing on from that, um, this question, or yeah, question says, doesn't the gospel define what is disputable? Sometimes the practice isn't, like eating food, but then sometimes it is. Uh, Colossians two sixteen to seventeen. Colossians two sixteen to seventeen. I should have brought a Bible with me, um, which is. Colossians 2, 16, 17. Do not let anyone judge you with regard well, to a, uh, a, a watch new moon, drink, a, a Sabbath festival. What's that? Yep. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Um, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The, the reality, however, is found in Christ. Um, so doesn't the gospel define what is disputable? Sometimes the practice isn't, like eating food, but then sometimes it is. It's not as neat as that. Because the way that one person might uphold the truths of the gospel could look different to the way another person does. Um, 
Let's say someone's a 35-year-old Muslim who for their entire life has considered eating pork products something that's not pleasing to God, in their case Allah, but they become a follower of Jesus. Uh, even bodily, they're probably not used to eating pork products. They probably don't want to, right? Uh, they can know that it's fine. They can know that it has absolutely, it's totally fine for them to eat the, the pork product or not. But it's very understandable to think that their practices of, of abstaining uh, are now very valid because they're actually honouring the true God uh, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think they can still be informed by the gospel and know that this is you know, something that doesn't matter and yet practice differently to somewhere else. So I suppose the gospel has defined what's disputable and indisputable, but we have to remember that it, it, it can work out, I think, in different ways for, for different people. Thanks, Ben. A um, uh, few more questions coming in. Thank you, everyone, for your questions this morning. This is great. Uh, next one is, how do we handle a situation where sinful living is characterised as a disputable issue? You sort of touched on this uh, this before, but I suppose how do we handle that situation? Yeah, where it's... Yeah, where it's up. Where something which the, being, where the Bible would say is wrong yeah. is being put uh, forward as as a disputable. The issue. scriptures directly address this problem, and you can read it especially in uh, the Epistle of John, one John, um, where anyone who continues to walk in sin has neither seen him or known him. Uh, just using the this is a disputable matter as a cover up in in itself is actually disobedient. Uh, and I think the Bible will, will be pretty clear and pretty heavy on that. Uh, next one. How do you deal or relate to a brother or sister who is dogmatic about eschatological issues? So uh, views about the, the the end of the world and how that's going to come about. How do you deal with a brother yeah, or sister who's this dogmatic? Is, this about is a it? wonderful question. Thank you. This is something that I think uh, we really need to have clarity on. There's the issue... And there's the approach to the issue. Sometimes the issue can be disputable. And I think uh, a lot of eschatological uh, theology, theological positions are disputable. Uh, some of you might not have heard of this, but um, uh, to divide it in three grossly oversimplified camps, you've got people who are amillennial, uh, which I, I, I am, people who are Premillennial, uh, maybe premillennial dispensationalists, which uh, a lot of people in the the US seem to be, and a small group of people who are called postmillennial. I'm not going to explain what those three things are. That's for another time, right? But we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we hold those different views. But what happens when someone says, "Unless you adopt my way of thinking, you are not in Christ." What's happened then is that the issue itself still remains a disputable issue, but the person's approach has actually put them into indisputable territory because, in effect, what they've said is, unless you believe X, Y, Z, you cannot be saved, and the Bible never gives that claim. So they've actually strayed into the area of justification by faith versus justification by works, and that's indisputable. To give you another example, you must be baptised, fully immersed, otherwise you are not saved. Now, baptism is still a disputable issue, but the fact that I've just said you must do this thing in order to be saved, 
The Bible says that's indisputable. We are saved by faith alone, not by our works. So the approach to the disputable issue is the thing wherein people can move uh, to being thoroughly disobedient. Uh, I hope that makes sense. Feel free to, uh, maybe I can write something on this afterwards. Uh, Christians always get confused because we don't, we don't separate those two things. All right, we've probably got time for a, a few more questions. Um, uh, quickly on this one, because we've got uh, two following this. Hi, a lot of early church disputes revolved around the nature of God, Trinity, Christ, nature. Would these be indisputable because of its link with salvation? Or would it be another category, i.e. we need a faithful understanding of God? So probably the suggestion is a, yeah. another important pillar I, to I think that on. I think the understanding has got legs, and I haven't explored enough to, to know. But I, I think you could still say that what was happening in the early uh, church councils, particularly when it comes to the personal work of Jesus and his divinity, his divinity and his manhood, is the church coming to recognize what is in fact indisputable in the Bible. Now, um, there, there's a great um, uh, theologian named Herman Bavinck who, who wrote a, a big systematic theology. And uh, one of the things he argued quite early on is that, to take example, the Council of Nicaea, where, where it was the issue of Arianism, is Jesus fully God and fully man? The council, in the end, voted yes, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And the vote was something like 398 to 2, right? Um, Herman Bavinck would come and say, the Spirit of God, who is at work in the church, would not have allowed a false outcome. That is, he recognises that the church, in and of itself, can recognise, can come to the recognition of what God has made indisputable. I want to be very careful and say that the church does not define what is indisputable, that moves us into Roman Catholicism, but the church can recognise it, and that argument itself is borne out in Scripture. Paul himself will at points say, if anyone wants to differ on this, we have no other rule in the churches of God. Thanks, Ben. Um, all right. A few people have asked about um, dating a non-Christian, uh, so here's one that captures it. Just out of curiosity, Ben, what is your scenario where you think a Christian could date a non-Christian? When I did the survey, I couldn't think of any. Yeah, it, that was the hardest one for me. Um, look, in the Bible, it's um, it's sinful Christ, for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And because dating, from what we can work out from the Scriptures, is the process of working out whether we should marry one another, to date a non-Christian is wrong. However, here's my scenario, Right. Johnny, oh, well, let's, let's, no, that's your name. Uh, Bill, have we got any John Bill? John, uh, Bill, let's go Bill. Bill. Bill is a Reformed Bible-believing Christian man. He's a young man, but he has a crisis of faith and goes off the rails. And one night, he's uh, trekking overseas, backpacking on his gap year, and he goes to a nightclub, and he gets absolutely drunk, and he hooks up with another young woman. And that woman says to him a few days afterwards, uh, Bill, I'm pregnant. Bill realises he's been an absolute idiot, he's thoroughly disobedient to the Lord he's known and loved, and he's had a, a period of stupidity which he must repent from. And he thinks to himself, in this particular girl's culture, this is going to be very, very difficult for her to manage, and I'm the one that really has sinned. I'm convicted that for her to be sort of secure it will be right for me to offer to marry her, to take her and care for her 
and look after the child and raise it uh, as a Christian if she's okay with that. She might say, well, I'm not sure, but can we spend a few weeks getting to know one another to see whether or not it'll be harder for me to deal with my culture and, and, and the fact that I'm having a kid or it'll be harder to marry you because I really don't like you and I don't want to be a Christian, right? In that, that, that uh, you can see that I'm being an ultimate Pharisee, deliberately so, looking for the absolute smallest sleeper. I can imagine someone being honouring to Jesus in that regard. But that's so far from what the usual scenario is for us. Thanks, Ben. And uh, lastly, um, if someone breaks down my door and threatens my family's existence, am I damned for killing them? Oh, not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, I easily vote yes to killing. Uh, there's a big difference. People always get this wrong. There's a difference between killing and murder, okay? Murder is with malice of forethought. Uh, God commands people to kill in the Bible. It cannot be in and of itself wrong, right? Uh, so, yes, uh, if the life of your family depends on it, uh, yeah, kill the person. And, and I think our, even our secular law courts would probably uphold that. Uh, well, we're, yeah. we're delving into the particular issues of disputable matters now, but um, thanks yep. again, Ben, for your, um, for your sermon this morning and uh, steering our hearts to our attitudes towards one another and to those uh, with whom we may disagree. Uh, we're going to cross now to Gav, who's going to lead us.